Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. And I'm recording from a new location. I don't know if my like how my levels are here because this is I have a larger bedroom now and the cats are going nuts because we moved and um, they're furious with me, especially Little Pearl. She's so upset. She'll get over it. She she's adaptable. She is our special demon queen from hell. So it was funny because like my roommate was kind enough to cat sit for me when I was out of town in Denver on the road. And it was funny because like without me really even saying anything, he noticed that Pearl was really conceited. Yes. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. She's such a little princess. It's so funny. But you know, so I was like, it's... Uh, we've had some really big news since the last time we were able to record an intro together, which is that um, Grimes and Elon Musk have parted ways. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't know how to explain, but this feels, um, this feels like it's um, like I'm projecting some things onto this perhaps (laughs) that I don't need to be, but it feels like it's a, I don't know, man. I mean, because on the one hand, I mean, Grimes and Elon Musk are bo- both narcissistic idiots. Yes. But on the other hand, it is funny that they're breaking There's out. something There is something enjoyable about it. I will say because they're not married, um, I know they have a kid together, but I, I would have liked to have seen what Grimes would have done with all the money that she would have gotten in a, an Elon Musk divorce. Um, but you know, she was photographed immediately after their, uh, their breakup was announced reading the communist manifesto. And then she did this whole, she did this whole Instagram post clarifying. Oh yeah. Yeah. she was like, I'm still living with E. She calls him E, yeah. which is well, so she gross. She also said that she's not a communist. Um, I know. That she she believes in a, what is she? What was her words? A radically decentralized UBI that can yes. be achieved through a combo of crypto and gaming. And I'm like, girl, you've spent so much time fucking a loser. I know. That is like... <laughs> Um, we, but, you know what, we pray for her, and uh, I wish her peace. I, I still don't know what her baby's name is, and I don't think she does either. But I, I wonder if she's gonna change it. I don't know. Um, I mean, I think the baby, when the baby grows up, the baby will change their yeah, name. Yeah, that makes sense. I, apropos of nothing, um, have decided to do a photo shoot of myself uh, reading uh, What Happened by Hillary <laughs> Rodham <Clinton. laughs> around the streets of Brooklyn. You know? <laughs> you know, to find out what happened. Yeah, to find out what happened. Um, 
Grimes, I don't know like a ton about Grimes music, but there that was the one song and music video, Oblivion, that I think oh my really God. put her on Absolutely the radar. Incredible. It was it's an incredible piece of art and um she used yeah. to have didn't she used to have like anti-capitalist in her in her Twitter bio and then when she, and then she she took it out when she and Elon Musk started dating? I didn't really even know anything about Grimes politically until her situation with Elon. Um, I just remember her calling. She was like, you know, when you think about it, E is like a Bernie Sanders-like figure. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like, girl, no. (laughs) What is his dick doing to you? (laughs) See, I feel like it probably isn't even about the dick in that situation. I mean, it was just like, it's all, I mean, you know, probably about the money, I would yeah, guess. Yeah, there's, there's, my, my roommate is, like, a full-on, like, Marxist communist, and he was like, look, man, I, if someone wanted to fuck me with that much money, I'd change a lot of myself, too. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, the thing is, is, all right, so, you know, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here in the spirit of, of uh, Elon, Musk. Elon Musk. Yes. <laughs> A lot of us, you know, narcissistic guys, like crazy, megalomaniacal, if I'm saying that right, those guys get laid no matter what all the time. I know. And like the rest of us are out here like fucking some idiot narcissist just because he, you know, was decent at sex four times. Grimes did it for billions of dollars. Like does that not on some level put the motivations of the rest of us to shame, you know, like <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, on, yes, it I does. Mean, I, you know, I am a leftist, but I have to say that getting billions of dollars is a better motivation than having okay sex four more times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's, I, I mean, to your point, exactly right. There's no way that Elon Musk has a good dick because I've seen the cars that he designs. And that uh, those are not the designs of someone with a good dick. Um, but I think, I don't know. They're still living together. They're so, ugh. They make me sad. I weep for their child. Um, not f- financially, obviously, but um, although he has, he has like a bunch of kids, I think. Elon? Yeah. Yeah, does he have previous children? I don't know. Yeah. That's one well, thing that's one thing that like one of the many things that is uh like super rich people do it and nobody bats an eyelash, but it's seen as like some moral failing when uh like lower middle class or uh working class people do it is having a lot of kids. <laughs> So I, comedy, uh, comedy world has been yes, and I totally agree with you. I just wanted to rem- remember to say that the the comedy world has been uh, rocked by Dave Chappelle's special because he's um, because he's because he's, he's, he's a self identified turf. He's now. he's too cool. He yeah. uh, he rocked our worlds because he is uh, just such a truth teller. <laughs> no, so I. I I got to talk about this a lot on the Patreon episode with 
our guest, Caitlin Barnes, who was the host of a podcast called Cancel Me Daddy. We didn't really talk about Strapel special exclusively. It was more like the kind of uh, the like pathway to making money. It was like one of these canceled guys or women, I guess, or you know. Um, sorry about Albert and Little Pearl. They're really going off. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talked about that a lot on the Patreon episode. So if you want to know what I think about that stuff, log on. To and Patreon and subscribe to our podcast. S- subscribe to our podcast. Subscribe to our Patreon. Um, you know, Dave Chappelle. When people referenced him as having been canceled, I was like, in when? He got like a five special or six special deal with Netflix and a hundred million dollars, and his last special won two Emmys. I think the problem with <laughs> Dave Chappelle's comedy um and his weird fixation with trans people it really is transphobia it's yeah. an obs- it's an obs- he it's been in his last four specials yeah he you know i think he has a happy marriage and you know it's like i guess if you're like a happily married person you're gonna have to find some shit that doesn't affect your life whatsoever to talk about in your comedy and it's like dave take one for the team you know you can't have this like happy family life like it's causing your brain to pursue weird hate paths you have you have money and a happy family life yeah your brain is mush yeah (laughs) sorry man Um, well i mean yeah i really don't think that i i think most comedians should uh should just wrap it up after they become a certain level of rich because you just your brain becomes mush anyways so um in other people that we're like uh annoyed with this week um you know Kristen cinema we haven't really talked about the fact that like there was evergreen a of, annoyed with her <laughs> yeah there was a lot of pearl clutching about the fact that some activists followed her into the bathroom um and we're talking to her while she was peeing i guess but I mean, like, she's having no town halls. Um, she closed her office. I actually think, and obviously this is not going to happen because Congress is responsible for passing this law, but I, I, I think in an ethical world that we don't have, Congress should pass a law requiring town halls with your constituents. Oh, 100, 100%. So it's like people had no way to get in touch with her um, or to, you know, have their opinions heard. You know, meanwhile, she's these uh, donor dinners and shit talking only to lobbyists and yeah if you're if you're not a pharmaceutical lobbyist, good luck getting a hold of Chris and Cinema. But I mean, to me, like, what did you think about this? I, I, I was talking to some people who were like following a woman into the bathroom. And it's like, I to me, I don't care. Like, I don't think that. I would follow her into the bathroom. As, as a woman, I would feel it is my civic duty to follow Kristen Cinema into the bathroom and be like, are you kidding me? Um, but I think my, my favorite about this whole thing was that, you know, <laughs> When Joe Biden was asked about it, he gave the kind of like perfunctory answer about like kind of the role of decorum or whatever. But then he ultimately landed on like it's part of the job. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> people you answer like you answer to the people i think senators especially are they don't feel that as much um yeah be- because the senate is so undemocratic to begin with bernie sanders has really been beating this drum on mansion and cinema yeah um you know i mean this is a really centrist bill but it also would do a lot of great things for people um you know just massive increase in funding for for child care which like i was thinking about today because i was watching a friend's kid and you know she's a single mom and it's like she's working like a whole other job to pay Mm -hmm. for child care and this is like someone that you know, by any standard makes what would be considered a middle-class salary. And it's like, you know, just working one job all day and then working another job like at night or when she has breaks just so that she can pay for someone to take care of her kid while she's working. And um, this is really disgusting. I mean, there's also, there's a lot of other good stuff in this bill. And like, you know, it's, I mean, as as Bernie Sanders pointed out, it's it's already a compromise. But, you know, at the same time, this would make a huge material difference in people's lives, um, lowering prescription drug prices. Um, there is which, by the way, Democrats ran on. Yeah, they're, you know, lowering the age for Medicare, Medicare. to 60 years old, yeah. um, adding, you know, dental vision. I mean, it's just common sense popular measures that pull well (laughs) yeah i think that the the centrist made new a new term for this um common sense measures that that pull well uh they're calling it popularism (laughs) 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 like it's some kind of like insane newfangled political idea to like do some stuff that people want i mean to me i'm not like i think whatever ultimately passes will be so dramatically reduced um but but yeah yeah, but as you said there is uh, there is a lot that will make a material difference in people's lives in this bill uh it's unfortunate that it doesn't go anywhere near far enough but there are also a lot of great in i have been having a hard time admittedly following each iteration of the bill as it goes through um reconciliation goes back and forth between the house and senate it's confusing and part of the reason it's confusing is because the media is not really covering like what is what is actually changing like it's all kind of you know it's all being framed as like this uh debate about like oh should the u.s like spend you know 3.5 trillion dollars which is like one over 10 years to i know like it's not that much money it's like nothing compared to the defense budget so Mm -hmm. you know and uh for fans of modern monetary theory uh true fans will remember that the u.s federal government can literally just print money Mm -hmm. (laughs) print that trillion dollar coin (laughs) yeah give um, it to us so I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's very, very frustrating. But at the same time, I think as we Biden really could be turning the heat on. Um, 
if he wanted to be. And, you know, I mean, it is like on some level, it's very sad that like if anyone is going to be expending energy to put the political pressure on for this very centrist bill, like it will be the left, you know, like, I mean, it's just. It's crazy that the left is <laughs> we're the one who has we yeah. have to defend Joe Biden's agenda <laughs> over and over again because centrists won't and he Joe Biden is a centrist and um but what I will say about the the last iteration of the bill that I saw did include a hell of a lot of funding for housing um so th- three of the most consequential federal programs uh housing programs section nine public housing uh section eight rental assistance and the housing trust fund um and 90 billion dollars for national rental assistance um which is section eight but um yeah there was a really good piece that um sia weaver who we've had on the show before co-wrote um with um one of her colleagues um for politico about the and she is like a uh she's the coordinator for the housing justice for all program uh campaign here in new york um about all the good stuff that's in that was in that iteration of the bill again i don't know where we are with this bill i'm so tired (laughs) so we have a very special guest on the podcast this week all right, so tell, tell oh me a little bit about it and tell our listeners a little bit about it. <sighs> God, okay. So, you know, you got, you, you all got your fucking wish. I uh, interviewed my dad this week for the podcast and um, I, I do want to apologize in advance in, in case uh, this hasn't been able to be fixed. My audio, my personal audio is a little loud uh, throughout the interview. My dad's sounds perfect, crystal clear. Um, but yeah, I had just kind of a freewheeling conversation with my dad about our dynamic and our uh, many differences of opinion and we ended up talking for most of the com- most of the conversation was about policing um and i i think that if nothing else it might be interesting for people to hear a perspective that they're you know a perspective on policing that could sharpen their own points of view that's how I think of talking to my dad. I've had to kind of like research and learn so much um, to really, because he has this very specific purview and experience uh, as a former police officer. Are we going to get canceled Um, for having uh, this perspective? Are we going to start running the, um, the can the cancel culture grift on our podcast. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, God, I would love to because we our need, we need money. I would love the cancel money. culture grift on our. <laughs> we need money. No, I just no. And as I said to him multiple times, I you know, it's 
it was ultimately an interview that took 10 years off my life. It was so it was very frustrating. My dad and I really disagree on a lot um, in this arena in particular. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he gave he definitely gave more like thoughtful answers than uh those that would get us canceled i think okay all right well that's that's <laughs> unfortunate to hear um well no we still might get i mean we, honestly we do need I, money, I would so cancel I, I would i would cancel him i i cancel him every day we did have a whole episode of the show about canceling canceling our dads yeah yeah 100 uh, i stand by it like loves to pretend that she does not listen to the podcast and um she texted me like a couple weeks after that episode just out of the blue like you know your dad is not that conservative he voted for hillary clinton <laughs> huge hillary clinton supporter <laughs> i mean yeah well the, oh we get into that too about how my dad is um Oh, there's just there's a lot here. Again, this is an interview that I did because people asked for it. I I have no further defense of it. It's, okay, I tried my best. Everybody, give give me a break. I I did my best. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been uh, yeah. It's it. This is. I'm very, very excited. It's been a long time coming. And you definitely check out our Patreon app this week with Caitlin Burns because that was a very good episode. It really, she's just a really, really thoughtful person. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were some uh, some surprises in the conversation, I thought. Like, it definitely wasn't a talk about just like, I, I feel like I'm really used to hearing like two perspectives. Of, like one is cancel culture is the biggest threat that we have right now and everyone is getting canceled including the richest people on earth or cancel culture is not real and it's like okay obviously neither of those things are true so this conversation yes. like really i thought kind of was a lot more uh nuanced if i dare say and make myself sound like an asshole but it was a good one <laughs> um all right no i think i think so well everybody uh, enjoy this fucking interview with my dad. Go to hell. <laughs> Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I can't believe what I am about to say, but today I have with me the most requested guest we've ever had. God help us all. Uh, it's my dad. Hi, dad. Hello, Julia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Yeah. Dad, how does it make you feel that you are our most requested guest? Um, I don't know how it makes me feel. Um, <clears throat> I think I should probably start listening to your podcast and... Uh, well, we know that you never will. See and... where I fit in. <laughs> now, Dad, I think a lot of people are interested in you because I talk, I talk about you a lot. You are... Uh, Kate, my co-host Kate, references you as Julia's cop dad. Um, you were a police officer for 34 years. Is that correct? 33 years. 33 years. Uh, but my, my background is in education, teaching. 
Uh, yeah, I know, but that was a long time I ago. I know, but you that know, we, we do things for different reasons. And you Okay, well, then let's start there. That's an, actually an interesting way to start. You, I mean, yeah, your background is in education. You allegedly wanted to be a teacher, uh, but you became a cop by your own admission for the money. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> as, as the great songwriter Randy Newman once said, it's money that matters. Wow, that is bleak, and I've yeah. heard you say that. That's one of your most favorite jokes. Well, it's true. That's it's, uh, which well, is unfortunate. Well, when you're when you're newly married and you're raising a family, and uh, everything is an expense, uh, you uh, you want to uh, make as much money and have as much time off as you possibly can. Well, that's but that's interesting because you actually didn't have a lot of time off. You worked all the time. Well, at some points I did, but I um I had enough time off to coach your sports and see your see your grandma school functions and plays and musicals and uh, and events and uh, that was I, I thought the, it worked that out. was a, a really big thing for you is coaching was coaching our sports. Well, if, if I had it to do over again, I would. <laughs> uh, for those of you at home, my dad absolutely ruined every sport for my brother. And who was a, a fantastic athlete, a, a preternaturally gifted athlete. Um, my dad really ran him into the ground. Uh, <laughs> now, Dad, you're an interesting case, I think, for a lot of people because you, you know, you were a, a decades-long cop. You're a third-generation cop, uh, but you also love, you know, you love female singer-songwriters. You love Bette Midler. You you have a uh, you have a taste for art that is not necessarily indicative of your profession uh no i i i don't i really uh you're retired by my, the way yeah. my my two best friends are uh, happen to be police officers but they were also from different disciplines and uh were my best friends well before uh any of us uh took the police job so yeah i mean these were all your best friends since you were Fourth grade. Fourth grade, yeah. Wow. Well, there's just, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, Dad, you and I talk on the phone almost every day about so, something or other. Is that? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and what, you know, you and I uh, scrap quite a bit politically. Would you agree with that? We do. We have, a, we have a difference of opinion in certain on certain issues, I meant, I have many issues, and you have been you're you're technically an unaffiliated voter. You're not a uh, you're unregistered as or you're not unregistered. You're unaffiliated, uh, but you have voted as a Republican for you did vote as a Republican for many years. Yes, so you voted for Republican candidates, but you were always unaffiliated. Right. I okay, so obviously that's quite different from me, but but I do think that you have you've gotten wise to a lot of the bullshit that exists uh, in Republican ideology, in conservative ideology. Where do you think? I, I'm interested in this from your perspective. Where do you think uh, the biggest divergence in our ideology is? And our ideology, um, you and me. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I just know where I am. I mean, I'm I'm a probably a Republican, but not a Trump Republican. Certainly not. I think he's, you know, he's an aberration. He's a Neanderthal, and I, quite frankly, so are his his uh, supporters for the most part. Uh, it just uh, I I just have no idea what they think about. I mean, critical thinking is certainly not not any part of a Trump Republican. And um, but even he the, set the he set the Republican Party back. I think at, at least a decade. But even at its core, Republican ideology. I, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that you're still you still feel like you're probably a Republican because from what I know about your opinions, I would not characterize you as such. I think you are you're more of a, a centrist, um, because you don't believe in. A lot of what the Republican Party no, I mean, stands I'm, I'm, for. I'm, I'm, I'm um, pro-abortion rights. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, woke king. Yeah, go off. And, uh, <laughs> no, um, no, but I'm very conservative as far as uh, the economy goes. Yeah, that's and, well, that's what I was um, going to say. Yeah, but um, you're like pro-LGBT. Absolutely, and um, I'm you. Immigration, I think we're. Uh, it's it, you are, quite ridiculous, our, our lack of any type of immigration policy. Um, I think what's going on at the border is a disgrace. Um, and I think we basically, um, we, we need to take a hard tack on these tens of thousands of people who are coming to the border. And uh, we just, we, you know, we're still, we don't know really what to do with them. And, so uh, this is, this is, this is where I would say our, our ideology diverges the most significantly because you are that in, in that area alone, you are very much aligned with Republicans. And I think that if anything, that's the one, if I could call you a single issue voter at the federal level, is it fair to say that that's it? Um, no, in the economy. Well, okay. So this is another thing is that you do have, you still have a belief that in the, uh, the market's ability to self-correct. Yes. Yeah. Speaking. Yes. Um, I do, and you know, well, that's not that silly. not that I don't. <laughs> quite frankly, I don't believe that any uh, that any corporation should pay no tax. Yeah. I think uh, I think certainly we see nationally uh, municipalities, uh, states, and municipalities are giving tax benefits to um, attract. Uh, corporations and business to their communities, to their states, et cetera. Yeah, I think they should be given given some sort of incentive. However, you know, for for a corporation like Amazon to pay no tax, for instance, is ludicrous. And also because of the way that Jeff Bezos has structured his own salary, technically Jeff Bezos' salary, his annual salary is something like $80,000 a year or something. Oh, that's what he's worth. Uh, yeah, you know. He doesn't so, do much. But, but on the you, company. But, you know, what in your dream world, I don't like, again, even though you say that you're more conservative about the economy, you don't believe, you don't believe in corporate personhood per se. Is that right? Say what? Corporate personhood. Which is what? That corporations should be treated as people. Oh, no, absolutely not. And that um, basically we should let corporations self-police. No, no. The, the government needs to... Needs to basically um, monitor banks and 
corporations, uh, any type of business, import, export. I mean, there they, they should be a set standard that, that government uh, has to, to, to affect any type of business, and that's basically to monitor it mm-hmm. and, and have rules and regulations as to how it, how it should proceed. See, this is, well, so this is why I don't think that you have typical conservative ideology because you are, at your core, not a small government guy. Is that fair to say? You believe in the role of government. Yes. Some issues, small government, but for the most part, things <clears throat> like, uh, um, you know, take, take the uh, problem we had in 2008. Mm-hmm. We, we should have had we should have had some corporate heads going to prison quite frankly yeah. because they, they were you know knowingly complicit to what what happened and taking bonuses yeah exactly just and, absolutely rubbing it in everyone's face right, right. and mm. um, you know that was unfortunately it was the government's decision not to prosecute them yeah which which I think was wrong you're sending a message to uh, basically to the country that this type of this type of behavior is is uh, acceptable, Permissible. which it isn't. Well, I actually we we talk about this on the show a lot, but that was I I, I think one of Barack Obama's major missteps early on. He campaigned on kind of reining in the financial industry, and then the first thing, oh, oh okay. Well, my mom. Well, that was a, a little break for the the Red Sox. The Red Sox game is on in my house. I'm currently in Massachusetts. Uh, my mom is offended that we're not. I'm not interviewing her, but I'm sorry. I don't. I, I, my mom is just not as inherently. She's not as uh, expressively political as my my dad is. Um, so, but you also. I again. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But again, you're not a small government guy. You're, you know, you in the town where you live are the chairman of the Park and Rec Commission. You believe in public utilities and public spaces. Is that right? Yes. That's why I'm involved with Parks and Rec. So, and you did vote for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary last year. For who? Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I did. And I, I know you did, um, but my theory is that you voted for Bernie Sanders because you hate Elizabeth Warren and wanted to embarrass her in her own state. That's the only reason I voted for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Well, it's still a vote. A vote is a vote, Mally. Vote is a vote. Um, so who, again, it, it does surprise me that you say you still align at all with the Republican Party because who in the Republican Party do you think currently, as it exists now, represents your point of view and someone who would be looking out for your interests? Um, Joe Manchin. Yeah, that I mean, he is a Republican for sure. He is well, a sentient lump of West Virginia coal. Yeah. 
I this is why I just don't. Again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I don't. Good, don't. Okay, but I don't think that there is. I think that if you went to any sort of Republican convention, they would call you a Democrat. You would you would hear a lot of things that would make you mad. Yeah, which is is probably uh, one of the reasons that the party is headed in a direction that it shouldn't be headed in. It just you know the this this crew. I mean, how anyone after after just living through four years of a Trump presidency, how any Republican can think what he did, anything he did was, you know, representing public uh, Republican ideals is, is crazy. I mean, the man is, uh, some of the statements he's come out with, he's, you know. He's, well, actually, but when you think about it, Trump was the culmination of a lot of the Republicans' ideology in terms of being extremely, quote-unquote, pro-business. Well, he was a response. He, what, what Trump did was, unfortunately, he got the, you know, he, he, got, a, he got Americans that were, were thinking that the liberal Democrats were, were going to be taking over the government and taking their jobs away and giving them to a, a more diverse um, uh, base. And, you know, they were threatened by it, and they shouldn't have been. But uh, they were. Because that's a lie. And, yeah, exactly. And that's a Trump. I mean, that's a no, Trumpism. But, that, but that's actually, but that started so long ago. That started, I mean, that started in the Reagan years with the idea of, quote unquote, the welfare queen. No, but it was, it was exacerbated uh, with Trump. I mean, and, and just, just his manner of um, getting his ideas out there and perpetuating ideas that were, you know, basically untruths. You know, if you if you tell a lie long enough, there are going to be an inordinate number of people who believe it. And uh, unfortunately, he you know constantly just uh, you know the Fox uh, barrage of uh, of of his you know his newscast and uh, well, they over all, and over and over they <laughs> they all. Uh, my mom just came over. And put a sticky note on my dad that said, "Dad voted for Trump." <laughs> uh, um, I don't tell my wife everything. Um, but you did in 2016. Yeah. Why? Sure. Why not? Well, because I was. Because you I weren't going to vote, vote for Hillary. For, exactly. Why? Why? Let's see. Like, why Trump over Trump? And you voted for him in the primary too. First of all, I never thought Trump would ever. Would ever defeat Hillary? Okay, never. Why? Why vote for him? Why vote for anyone? Is it why? Well, why you know, I should like, have. I should have abstained, quite frankly. But you voted for him in the primary. What was about him? What was it about him in the primary back in sixteen? Because you hate him now, but back in sixteen, you voted for him in the primary when there were some more "quote unquote" legitimate, uh, you know, regular conservatives in in the bunch. What, was it his like strongman bravado bullshit? No, 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 no. He's uh, is it was it or was it the fact that he was kind of race baity and uh, was really big on uh, you know build the wall? No, no. Um, he, um, I mean, he's you know he said he said 
He said certain things certainly no other politician would say, but for the most part, the majority of things he said were just uh, were offensive. And um, I don't know. I just uh, no uh, no faith in Hillary. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, fine. Let's not have another Clinton involved. I mean, with the White sure. House. I don't yeah. like. I don't love the Clintons either. Dad, I need you to pay attention. If we're, we're gonna, <sighs> we're not gonna be that much longer. How about okay? those Red Sox? Oh my God. I'm competing with the Red Sox game, yes. and I'm losing. It's extra innings. It's four to four. Look, you know, I think that there were a lot of people who are like you who were really disillusioned with the Clintons, did not want to see, and you know, the Clintons had so much baggage. I don't want to relitigate the 2016 no, election. No, no. But where do you stand now with the in the Republican Party? Because okay, let's let's take a classical. Republican, someone who does stand for the quote unquote party ideals, that's like a Mitch McConnell, honestly. No, I, yeah. I mean, no, I'm, it'll be interesting to see who the Republicans proffer as their next national candidate. But there is your, a lot of your ideology, I mean, apart from immigration, flies in the face of Republican ideology. You are, again, you're not a small government guy. You, like the fact that you are even I'm a, a Republican tip O'Neill. Oh my god. I'm somebody who can go across no. the aisle and no. make, cut a deal. No. You're oh this is so this is why I never wanted to have you on. And I don't blame you. <laughs> quite frankly. Because this is so frustrating. This is like our talks during the week. It really is. Anyone who um What's so frustrating to me is that you are a smart person, uh, and I I try to like go down the line of you of reasoning with you, and I think it's going to end somewhere, and it never ends where I think it should, <laughs> because like honestly, you know, if you take Republican ideology, that's like privatization of public schools, eliminating public schools, um, you know. No, I mean, you know, not all. That's you can never eliminate public schools. Number one, um, they, the privatization is something that um, that re Republicans are in favor of, um, thinking that they can they can do a better job. For instance, I mean, I was the president of a. A union, one of the largest un unions of its kind in in Massachusetts, and um, I mean the history of of civil service and uh, and unions have uh, I mean unions are are a necessity, but they have morphed into um, vehicles that uh, you know sometimes can slow an entire industry down. And, well, um, that's a that's a classic Republican talking point. Yeah, for instance, the you know you you have the air traffic controls that that went on strike. Um, what like thirty years no, ago? No, no, but I'm just saying that's <laughs> one. They had a very strong union. They decided to go on strike, and what what happens there? You you let well, do you, do you let but, the country you let the well, country what's, grind what's, to a halt as far as transportation striking goes? Striking is one of the only. It's one of the only cards in the deck for workers. Yeah, and I mean... What, I'm, what's the alternative? I, I, I'm, you, have, I'm not, you have like a privatization where you where you can't strike? You're fired if you try to strike? No, I mean, we, um, 
we tried locally here. I mean, even with my own um, my own recreation uh, parks and recreation department, we we actually actually hired an additional employee to replace a private company who was handling our our parks maintenance, and it it worked out much better. And we got tremendous pushback from uh, the town. That gee, do we really want to hire an employee? We're going to have to give them benefits, etc. And we're really looking to privatize. But as it turned out, we, we you know we told them let's do it for a year and see how it works out. And we saved the town over sixty thousand dollars the first year. And that employee is going on his ninth year with us now. And also, so there are times when something like where privatization actually hampers productivity. In, in, in the case that you just made, um, the private company was not doing as good of a job as this one public employee. Well, I think there's a, I think there's a, um, there's a tendency to, you know, once again, if you, you hire a, a, a private company to handle a governmental, uh, governmental function, now it's a supervisory thing or a supervision um, who supervises that? Who is watching over them? Whereas you have an employee um, that is supervised by other other town employees, there's much more accountability. So oftentimes uh, you see in the in the private well uh, private private sector companies that are hired by governments have a tendency to basically have little supervision and create bigger problems than in-house people would. So I think it stands to reason that unions still, even even when they at times strike when their conditions are so bad, because unions are never just striking for no reason. You know this. Right. I mean, there's usually a breakdown in negotiations of um, collective bargaining agreements. or Right. You know, whatever, but it's usually gotten to such a point where there is no there is no other option. So, however, and strikes are very rare. So, I think that that are, I think you've just disproved your own argument about unions slowing down a process. Well, strikes are, are, are very rare because of the ramifications of a strike. You know, what, what, um, but it has to be, things have to be really bad for a strike to happen. You have, oh, no, no, they, that's the that's the rationale behind a strike that that we have no other recourse but to right. So would stop you rather? Work. So would you rather have a robust, uh, organized labor movement in this country or more privatization? No, I mean, um, of course, but uh, of you course know what, what? What? Of course, you'd want a ro- robust labor, but. The, the the thing is, when you're at an impasse, for instance, when two groups are at an impasse, a labor union, for instance, and whatever, there there are other avenues. There's, um, uh, you know, once you once you've once you've uh, exhausted negotiation, you go into arbitration, and then uh, you know there are certain avenues that both sides agreed upon that. Uh, would be fair and equitable, but um, also I can't believe that you brought up the air traffic controller strike. That was literally during the Reagan. No, but it, it's a, no, I, I know it is, but it, it's a 
it's it's something that it's in an industry um, that you can't afford. You can't afford to have a strike. Like, for instance, police officers and firefighters, why are they not allowed to strike? Because they're public safety employees. Because they're public safety employees, same as uh, air traffic controllers, public safety. Okay. And, and when, when that comes into it, I mean, you do. When I, when I took the job, um, you know, I knew I had no, you know, even when I was president of a union, I knew our, I, I knew our union had no, I knew our union had no, um, you know, no right to strike. And um, that's... Right, but you got... Police unions are... Wouldn't you admit police unions are a bit set apart from other labor unions in their outsized power and influence? Oh, no, true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You more or less got what you wanted a lot of the time. Well, we did, but I, I like to think we got we got what we wanted because we we just inundated the the town with facts and figures and comparative statistics and. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sure that that's what you would like to to think. Well, but that was our that was our story, and we stuck with it. <laughs> okay. Well, a lot of unions, a lot of labor unions, inundate their uh, you know the suits with facts and figures and don't get as far. It's because. Well, you have to, you know, in, in my case, where it was a, a town of just under 60,000 people, we had to use public relations. We, we, were, we were seen by the community as a necessity and, you know, something that was not a necessary evil, but something that was a, a tremendous asset to the town. And we used... In what uh, way? Well, we, we used our... We used our uh, our uh, goodwill with the the town meeting and um and the residents to basically sell our our position at town meeting when it came to new contracts etc okay um what like what? for instance the fire department they're always talking they, the town was always talking about let's close one of these uh these these fire uh fire department houses uh, and they're set up they're set up regionally uh, in our town and uh, different se- segments. The fire department was relentless about um, PR and, and taking it to the people like, uh, you know, this is what's going to happen if they, if they close the fire department uh, building in your neighborhood. And, you know, in that, in that instance, they're using, they're using their, their goodwill and their public relations with the, with their municipality as a benefit to them. Okay, but that's but so that kind of goes exactly to my point. What so fire the fire department has uh, of any given municipality has a different relationship usually than the police do with that with the citizens of that municipality. What did you see as you as your department being an asset to the town? First of all, how many officers were there? 140. Uh, for a town of 60,000. That's right. Under 58,000. And do you think that that number is appropriate? Yeah, for what the town wants. I mean, we're, we're basically a, we, we were a response to what the town wanted. And we handled issues that the town wanted. Like what? Um, 
domestic violence. We were the only police department in the Commonwealth that had 80 hours of in-service training that was mandatory. And um, and that's the, because the town believed that a well-trained police department um, is will protect the town down the line from being sued. And, um, <laughs> and protect the town from being sued. Hopefully, protects people no, and, not uh, from dying. No, going going with that, going with that, we were the most educated police department in the Commonwealth. We had 140 officers. 126 had college degrees. Of 126, almost 90 had masters or above. Mm-hmm. So, as the fact that we were the most educated. It, it just went hand in hand with, and we were the least litigated against police right. department in the Commonwealth. And the town loved that. Um, they were always, educational incentive was never a problem with the town. They wanted, they wanted um, educated, an educated police force. And um, Do you think that that's one of the big problems with police forces today around the country that you see getting into these? Yeah, it's, uh, um, education and training is the biggest thing. Uh, some of these, uh, some of these, uh, these issues with police shootings and um, police use of force nationwide clearly are instances lack of training. And oh. not only not only that, it's um, most police departments have no training whatsoever in um, tr- trauma informed policing. They just they they just don't have it. They're they may be victims of trauma themselves. They can't recognize someone who's in trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's something they can be trained to recognize, okay. which would preclude them from ever getting into some of these some of these uh, volatile situations. Do you think that there should be more rigorous psychological testing for police Oh, absolutely. Officers? When I came on the job, and that was 30 years ago, over 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago, I had three days of psychological testing. Six hours of paper testing, second day videotape role playing, mm-hmm. and then the third day one on one with a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And what the town wanted to do was make sure they had no John Wayne types on the uh, on the uh, police department. Right. So you, so I mean, the town where you were a police officer was very affluent, um, and had a, I mean, 140 police officers is a fairly large police force. Yeah, for 50, well, we were what at the time? 56,000 people, 6.7 square miles, which is small. Mm-hmm. And most of the most of the citizens were in a certain certain portion of the town. Okay, so, but say that the town where you live now, the town where you live now has a, uh, a police department that is a fraction of that size uh, and, and also not as many resources. Yes. And they're, the psychological testing as you understand it, you've told me is pretty minimal. There's none. Yeah, which is which is a problem, and that that's going to that creates a problem somewhere down the line. It will create a problem, and uh, you know also the re, you know you talk about resources. You have to you know you know this 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 great push to defund the police. Well, you you, you don't public safety and public service. For that matter, you don't do more with less. You do more with more. And police police agencies are a referral agency. They don't, you know, we don't 
we don't go and, and do psychological uh, evaluations of people we deal with that are uh, emotionally disturbed, etc. We may refer them. I mean, I can't tell you in, in 33 years, I took uh, several dozen people off the street temporarily. Um, Massachusetts law allowed me to do it. If I thought they were going to be a threat to themselves or others, I, have to, I had to articulate it. And not only that, I had to fill out forms for the hospitals and you loved paperwork. Well, that's your yeah. paper, paperwork king. He that would was, do other people's paperwork. That was my forte. But, <laughs> um, but you know, something like that, we don't, we're referral. We're not going to get into, um, you know, what we would do with, with, for instance, an emotionally disturbed person. First thing we would do is contact a treating physician or immediate family, etc., and then take it from there. Worst case scenario, we'd have to take the person off the street, send them to a facility. But for the most part, we went. We were referral. Same thing with juveniles. Um, same things with homeless. I mean, we were referral. We weren't locking up uh, people who were uh, who were homeless, or we were we were referring them to places where they could get more permanent housing, uh, you know, uh, consistent health and uh, and and. Uh, Decent, decent uh, dietary uh, consideration, et cetera. But, uh, but I think one of the issues is that, okay, okay, it sounds like, you know, the department where you worked, the training was, was top-notch. Oh, yeah. Uh, good, good for you. Yeah. But that is not, that, if anything, seems to be an anomaly. Oh, it is, and that's the problem. People say, you know, if anything, you, you don't defund the police, you, you dissect the police and what they do for the community. And then, you know, they're basically just a reflection of the community. What does the town or city want from their police department? What, you know, what can they expect? Um, and once you decide what it is, now you want these people trained to deliver that type of service. And however they deliver it will be, will be up to the, the citizens to decide. And usually it comes with an expense. And but the big thing is training. But okay. In it seems that in in many instances, police officers are not when they arrive at a scene, they are not de-escalating a situation. Many times the situation further escalates. In fact, there is the son of one of your friends who is uh, you know, neuro atypical uh was murdered by a police officer in a neighboring town to the one that you policed how do you square those things well that's you know you talk that that's unfortunate that's a, a travesty i mean a tragedy and um but you know you you considering there are over 27,000 police agencies in the in the country um, you, you know, you have to take it, you have to take those statistics and um, weigh them against calls for service, et cetera. Yes, things are going to happen. Uh, things are going to, ha- things like that are going to happen. Tragic, absolutely. And, um, and it's you completely know, completely inexcusable. Well, yeah, it, it is. And then you get to the root cause of it. You know, what could have been done in that particular situation that would have, um, would that have been a more appropriate situation for, say, a social worker? No, no, because if this person, 
if you get a call for an emotionally disturbed person, you let a social worker in there and they get stabbed to death, there's going to be, you need someone of authority there who, who can prevent violence being done. And we've had it. We've, we've had instances in my town where we've, we've had to come and assist social workers mm-hmm. doing exchange of, of uh, children, et cetera, to divorce parents or whatever that have gotten into violent uh, altercations with the parties that they were dealing with. Do you think it's appropriate for a social, a social worker to even be present at a situation like that? Because in, in the situation that... They we, can and, and, and assist. Right. Yeah. But, in the situ- but so, they don't go first. Okay, fine. But the... <laughs> The situation that I'm I'm referencing here of again your friend's son who was murdered, uh, just it can't just be oh tragedies happen. This no, is no it, it it is unfortunately it is tragedies happen. But um, what has to be looked at and they're waiting on this. This this has been being scrutinized as we speak. But that's treating it as if it's just an inevitability and it's not. No, that, it's it is inevitable if. You're not prepared for it. It's absolutely inevitable. And the thing is that um, that communities um, nationwide have to make sure that their agencies that are responding to these calls are prepared for things like that. When I first came on the job, I just got out of the police academy. We go to a call, that person in a restaurant lounge, he's at the bar, he's disturbing. He's swearing at patrons. We walk in. I'm walking in with a... Field training officer. It's my first week on the job. He's an older guy. He basically doesn't even want to be there. We walk in and we see the guy and he's he's acting up. He's he's letting expletives fly at the bar. So I go up, speak to the bartender, speak to the some of the some of the patrons. It's clear that my partner wants to take him into protective custody. And I I decided to ask a few more questions and do a mini investigation and find out that there's, we can't take him into custody because he's not intoxicated. And per the bartender, he's taken one sip of a beer and I find out that he has Tourette's syndrome. Mm-hmm. So consequently, but there, that would have been, you know, maybe if there was an older officer there, they would have just, you know, well, sweep him the up. The one who you were and, with wanted to take him into protective custody. No, absolutely. Custody. But I'm saying he would have been taken into protective custody. Then we would have had to release him. So what we did was we brought him in. As it turned out, he was the vice president of the National Tourette's uh, Association. Association nationwide. And we brought him in to teach at our end service. Okay, that's great. But this is what I'm saying. It's th- these like by your own by your own framework that you're using right now tragedies are not an inevitability they because in that situation that could have been a that could have been a tragedy someone with Tourette's well he would have been in, yeah he would have been taken into custody so, brought in okay into, well someone like your friend's son if if there were the if people <laughs> if the police officers in question were not arriving at a scene further escalating it and instead trained in de-escalation, although I don't believe that training is a panacea, um, I, I don't, I still don't understand how you, how the thesis that you, that you arrive at is 
tragedies are an inevitability. No, they they are if there's lack of training. There's okay. absolutely. Okay. And training, the more training, the better. Training should be mandatory. And, you know, you should be able to address. There's a reason police, police for instance, um, first aid. And um, first aid is something that the Commonwealth requires police officers to, uh, and CPR. Um, they have to be qualified twice a year. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's something that at in-service training we go through and we're certified. Mm-hmm. And just missing it once is unbelievable. You forget certain things that you can't. So whether it's going to the range, police officers historically are horrible shots. <laughs> no, they are. They, I mean, that's that's a fact. But... You know, town of Brookline would go sometimes four times a year, would shoot at night and with, you know, with the lights off, with the Mm -hmm. cruiser lights going, everything to put us in a position of where we might be. What we want to do is we want to, you know, take the stress level down and just and and get people, hey, what do you do here? You look for cover, you know, in something like that, a, a, a shoot, don't shoot situation. We're looking for cover where um where we're looking not to injure any civilians and um and that's all training you don't i mean you've you i took you to our our fats room our uh firearms automated uh training Mm -hmm. and uh you know we have a 180 degree screen we have a uh, it's a a very high tech facility it's very and we would do that probably four times a year and it's just be prepared unfortunately unfortunately all of this training is a luxury um, well, it is a luxury, but it's but sometimes. But don't you it, think that that should be like things, not maybe the 180 degree screen or whatever, but that kind of rigorous testing and training, don't you think that should be built into police budgets? Oh, no, absolutely. And don't you think that this has to start at the academy level? Yeah, no, it, it does. Because it does. one well, of the they, big problems, you know, you have a master's degree, your department was very educated, but largely police. Being a police officer has kind of become a job for people who don't really know what else to do. Well, it depends. It depends where I mean, you go to uh, you go to a college like university like Northeastern that has one of the preeminent um, criminal justice programs in the in the country. Uh, you have people who are hell bent on going five years of co op there and and doing co-op assignments in police departments with the secret service with you know anything in law enforcement related and you know they're looking at it as a profession um so it's not but for the most part you know in the midwest a lot of sheriff's departments where the sheriffs are elected and they're they're hiring relatives etc that's a problem and especially if they're just giving them Here's a set of rules and regulations or bylaws or whatever for the area. And here's a gun. And, you know, um, we'll, we'll see you every, uh, every two weeks to pick up your check. That, that's a problem. I mean, it's a profession. It should be treated like a profession as if you were working at Fidelity Investments. And uh, it's basically how, how it But it, it shouldn't it should be treated go. like you're working. It should, it's, it's a public, it should be a public service job. No, but I'm saying the professionalism of it. Yeah. The, the type of training that, that, that people get in the private sector for their, their chosen field, it should be every, 
every bit as intense for the public sector. So do you think there should be a kind of universal standardized set of barometers for police departments uh, in terms of training, even though there's 26,000 police departments in the, U- the United States? 27. 27. Um, well, they have the... Uh, the- the government has a, a national accreditation standards, and there are hundreds of them. But they seem to be uh, for inadequate. No, no, there, there, there are only a handful, quite frankly, of accredited police, nationally accredited police departments in the country, which is a problem. And um, it, it's yeah, standards as far as what you know, and then how long is it going to take to to create? Um, these standards and who's creating the standards a bunch of politicians I you know with no background in law enforcement I don't know okay but let's say that we treat it like becoming a doctor there in med school you have X number of hours of uh, class and training and residency do you think that that would be a, a standard like that would be helpful oh no absolutely for, for police yeah departments? yeah um, and uh, I, I think no matter where you go, communities are going to have input into their own, regardless of what, what national standards uh, come about. Individual communities are going to have individual standards that affect only their community, what they perceive as being their, important to them and something that they need, need assistance with mm-hmm. uh, or something that they're, community should should have as a standard so when you see something like uh, recently we, you know you and i watched this on the news together uh there was a man in ohio who was a paraplegic man in ohio was ripped out of his car by police um because he said he couldn't get out of the car and they didn't believe him what goes through your head when you see something like that? once again that's training a lack of training they, you know, they, it's, they're not assessing the situation. They tell him, they, you, you have to go further. He's certainly not a threat to them. Yeah. There's several of them and one of him. Mm-hmm. So well, We see that over and over again. Yeah. So, you know, the, the immediacy of the situation really doesn't, doesn't count because, you know, you have time. And, you know, one of our old adages was, when in doubt, summon. And and then basically it's what does you, that mean? If you well, if you think about it, what can I do? When in doubt, I can either arrest you, physically take you into custody, or summons you. Just write out a court complaint. You'll you'll be summons to court for the whatever the issue is. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's no there's no interaction, uh, no physical interaction. Yeah, so it seems like the issue is that for so many police departments across the country, thousands of police departments across the country, it seems that use of force is the first line of defense. Well, no, I mean, that's they have a nat- national, we, co- we call it a uh, force continuum. And it's, it, it's pretty much been adopted by, vir- or should be, should be, but I believe it has been adopted by virtually every law enforcement agency. And it's, you only use enough force as to affect an arrest or a uh, detention. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, the first, the bottom of it, it, it goes up like a pyramid. And depending on the officer's size, sex, etc., you can, like, for instance, a five foot three police, female police officer who's 100 pounds, if she's dealing with a college football lineman and she's decided she's going to take him into custody, she can escalate the force right away mm-hmm. because of the situation. But for someone, for instance, my size, who's six foot three, and I, I'm going to tell you that you're being taken into custody. I put my hand on you to mm-hmm. affect a detention, and you, you push me away. Now I escalate to the next force, which might be, um, which might be pepper spray, say, mm-hmm. or I go to an ASP, which is a uh, airline crafted, and then further on, and then the top of the of the force continuum is deadly force, and that's only if deadly force is being used against you. Right. But but that is that's a, basically a national standard, and. The, the problem is people don't, people don't, uh, police officers don't get to experience it in real life enough to where they're comfortable with, oh, I know how to handle this. Well, I mean, in the case of your friend, uh, your friend's son, it seems that deadly force was used pretty early on. It appears. I, I don't, you know, I haven't seen the report, et cetera. I'm waiting. I'm going to scrutinize it like everybody else is. But uh, once again, it's lack of training. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how how long the police officers who responded have been on the, have been on the police force. I don't know um, what kind of training they've had, et cetera. I don't know what set them off. I don't know what the situation of the scene was, et cetera. But um you know, tra- in my mind, training is everything. Well, you, you know, watching your reaction to that video, uh, the the body cam footage of the man in Ohio who was ripped out of his car, the paraplegic, paraplegic man, you know, it upset you. So, I mean, at its core, do you, you must think, or I, I, I don't want to, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Do you think that, Policing writ large is broken in this country. Is broken or in need of some kind of like bottom up? No, there's no, there's no question. They too many. Like for instance, take uh, take um, Minneapolis. Okay, that uh, George Floyd. Yeah, George Floyd. Now clearly, um, who's who's responsible for his death? Okay. Certainly Officer Chauvin is, but I would say that Officer Chauvin's supervisors, the administration, they're all responsible for Floyd's death because they allowed him to continue on the street after 17 complaints. He should have been taken off the street, especially when those complaints are predominantly the same thing. Excessive force, he was rude. Um, he used vulgar language, whatever it is, he should have been sitting behind a desk and then they should have been sending him to, um, basically to retrain. And if he went back on the street and had the same problems, then they should be looking to terminate him. 
And, you know, for any administrator to allow him to continue, shame on them, they're as culpable. Yeah. And in 33 years on the force, did you ever use deadly force? No. Was I close to using it? Yes. Why? What are the factors that you think contributed to you never feeling moved to use deadly force? Do you think it's just because, honestly, my theory has always been that it's just because you have a higher cognitive ability than a lot of these. I mean, I don't think you're that smart, but you're like the... Oh, no, I am. No, you're not. The pool is shallow in terms of... No, the, 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 the reason, and it wasn't deadly force, it was any force. I knew when to use force, when it was appropriate to use force. And that wasn't because of my size or anything else. It was because of the situation. Because, number one, I had been trained to be put in that situation many times and trained to identify the situation, identify, identify the, the trauma-related issues in the situation, and act accordingly to them. So you, you mentioned trauma-informed policing earlier. Can you give us your, your best definition of what that is or what you think it is? You know, basically... Um, when police are called to a scene, I can honestly say that in 33 years, um, I don't think there were more than two or three times that I got called to, a, to see a police officer and somebody said, just wanted to tell you what a great job you're doing. It's always you're in a stressful or, or someone's in a stressful situation. They want your advice. They want you to act on their behalf. They want you to stop an action, etc. And um, it's um, in, in cases of trauma, which I, I mean, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of situations on the street that are, uh, you know, trauma related. Um, it, it's it's how we all respond to different things. And some people have, you know, they say have a short fuse. Well, why do they have a short fuse? Might be, you know, because of. Their, their background growing up, their relationship with their family, no relationship with their family, friends, etc. And um, like anything else, the more police officers can recognize on the street, the, the better they are at dealing with the different issues. Okay, well, what about police officers recognizing that within themselves? No, absolutely, that's part of it. That's that's the first step. Because as a matter are, of fact, there my, are a lot of a lot of police officers with a short fuse. Yeah, no, there are. As a matter of fact, myself and a good friend of mine who just graduated from Columbia University, master's degree in psychology, we're putting together a curriculum for uh, tra- trauma informed policing, and the, we're going to start with in service training at police departments. And the the first the first part of the the curriculum will be identifying it uh, within our own selves and our own backgrounds and families. And that's, that's important because there is certainly, there are uh, an inordinate number of, of uh, police officers, but you know, people in general that have had uh, trauma related uh, issues, uh, just, just stewing 
in their in their backgrounds and just have put them away or whatever and uh, not address them and they they might be exacerbated once they now get thrown into a, a have a gun in their hands. <laughs> well, no, or, or they get into a situation where they someone else has got tremendous trauma and is acting out, etc. And it, it just you know we need we need a police force that basically can take a step back and uh, you know ascertain what needs to be done and 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 do it um, yeah appropriately. Do you do you trust people to be able to have that level of self awareness within themselves? Like, would it be wouldn't it be appropriate to maybe have a third party assess those characteristics? Well, no, that's what that's where that's where the pre uh, pre employment screening comes in. What the, about once you're on the job for many years? You, well, no, you never no, go well, back that's, to a psychiatrist. No, but you do all virtually all police departments have access to. Um, Basically, to uh, services that allow for mental health screening, etc., and you know, you don't. It, 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 quite frankly, it would be it would be up to a supervisor, probably, if they're if if they're seeing that you might be running into a problem on the street, that you know, maybe you need to sit down and talk to someone. That that's something that should be pushed um, and and looked into. It's not, you know, the the big uh, taking a police officer's gun, for instance, uh, historically has always been thought, and oh boy, he's you know he's a he's a step away from the from the the psych ward. Um, you know why are they doing it, etc. I mean, sometimes you know sometimes this job is not right for people, and they need to they need to understand that and need to change professions. Sometimes sometimes it's up to administration to realize that this job's not for certain people and they need to make a move to make sure that this person gets help, number one, and then moves out of the profession. But, I mean, we're kind of talking about responsive and reactive uh, screening as it relates to police officers receiving psychological evaluations. Don't you think it would be more helpful to, in a preventative measure to have all cops uh, at least like quarterly see a psychologist. No, it's not uh, quarterly is, is, yeah. I mean, that's an arbitrary. No, it it should be, there there should be, you know, part of being promoted and being an administrator and and being a supervisor is to just do that. I mean, you need to be on these calls with, with people who are, who the police officers who are responding to them, and you need to ascertain how well they're doing. If you see any type of behavior that's out of the ordinary that needs to be addressed, then you move. You, you know, you, you you basically move to have it addressed. Um, you know, that quarterly. First of all, it would be. I I it, said yeah. quarterly as an example. All it's right. not. It's an arbitrary number. I'm just saying. Okay. Like, why wait until an officer? has an infraction against them or has a complaint filed against them to, to um, send them to a no, psychologist? No, well, here's the thing. Oftentimes that, especially in my town, where they encourage uh, the public to speak up and, and uh, file a, a complaint if, if they, you know, they deem necessary, um, usually something like that, I mean, it's a great way if, if, if the public is informed that we'll do something if you file a complaint 
will take action as a police department. That's a good thing. Because, and I mean, there are some people who file a complaint against an officer as what we call dropping a dime. They just want to get him in, into trouble, this and that. They don't like him, etc. Those things are easily investigated, and and they're, you know, they're they're not warranted. However, you start get getting complaints from different people, and the complaints are for the same issues. You have to now, excuse me, you have to now um, consider taking that officer off the street, retraining them. Because it just, you know, if you, you, you see the same deficiencies showing up in every complaint, you need to address it. So, okay, you know, we'll, we'll wrap this up soon. But I think Good. that... <laughs> I think that Because the Red Sox is still playing. I know. Uh, they're going really way into extra innings. Yes. Um, I think one of the things that I've heard you said, you, you say before, uh, is that your department was very concerned about your their relationship to the community. Very. Uh, do you, I mean, I, I think one of the, if, you know, just my own opinion, but it seems that one of the major issues is that many police departments uh, view their communities as adversaries. Um, yeah, they may, they shouldn't. Uh, I, I know they yeah. shouldn't, but... Doesn't that, from the posture of certain of how certain police departments operate, doesn't it seem that way that they are they just have a an inherently kind of like adversarial relationship with the people that they are the community that they are policing? They see them as other, as kind of an enemy almost. Well, I mean, I I don't know. I I I was never I was never part of anything like that. I, you know, I was very. But don't you see it in other, like. Oh, yeah. I, I see, I, I see some, um, some, uh, public statements made by sheriffs around the country, et cetera, that, um, you know, basically they're, um, castigating their, their communities for, uh, for making judgments on, on the police, um, on the police department or in law enforcement when, you know, they, they have no, you know, no frame of reference. They only know what they read, uh, read about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how can they, how can they say what they're saying? But, you know, to have, you really, every community should, should have a great relationship with their police department because we, we basically, we exist as a result of what, what, what citizens want, what, what residents of a particular community want, you know, that's why we're here. That's, that's, you know, well, but yeah, basically that's a charter of every, of every mission statement of every police department. So the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, it is. Well, Melly, we've, uh, we've gone, we've gone an hour now and, uh, Boy, do I disagree with so much of what you have to say. Well, you know, you've been doing that for decades. So. Um, but uh, let's let's rapid fire. Hey, uh, who loves you more than me? Oh, my God. Let's rapid fire yes or no issues we talk a lot about uh, on this podcast. Go. Raising the minimum wage to $15. Yes. Uh, student debt cancellation. Um. Question mark. <laughs> okay. Green New Deal. Not right now. 
<laughs> Wait, you want to wait for the, the seas to swallow us up? Eventually. Okay. Medicare for all. Medicare for all. Um, yeah, it's working well now. It's uh, it's a good thing. People should have uh, people should have. You, you mean good Medicare healthcare. works well? Oh, Medicare. Medicare um, for all. Medicare for all. I'm th- thinking healthcare for all. Um, well, that is it. Yeah, Medicare for all is basically. You're talking Medicare for elderly. No, Medicare. Medicare for all. You know, the, you know the whole thing. Medicare for oh, all. Oh yeah, I mean, you say Medicare. Medicare is only. It is only applicable basically to, to the elderly. I know elderly. that's why we. That's why the movement is called Medicare for all. All oh, right. Yes or no? Uh sure. <laughs> okay. Sure, why not? Okay. Well, folks, you asked for it. It's your fault. Sorry about all this. Um, I'm sure I'll see my dad drinking from his Julia is a communist mug tomorrow. Yeah, I'm getting a new one. Julia is a socialist. <laughs> well, Julia, it's been a pleasure. And uh, let's do this again real soon. Oh, my God. You stopped trying to stage a coup on my podcast. I'm, <laughs> I would ask you if there's anything you want to plug, but you don't have anything. No, I'm good. Uh, well... Thanks a lot, Dad. You're welcome, honey. I love you. I love you, too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is mine